Hi everyone, it's Herman here. Just want to give you a heads up before we get into this week's episode. This is not your usual All-Star Squadron podcast episode that we normally present to you guys. This one is a special one where Billy and I managed to snag an interview. And we're going to present that to you now. I just have to mention a small caveat here. Halfway through the interview, there were some technical problems from my end. Uh, We were using Zoom. Zoom cut out, and that cut our time with the creator short, which is a real shame. But, so, you know, in terms of All-Star Squadron questions, we only got 10 minutes (laughs) to ask him about All-Star Squadron. Still, the interview is there. It started off great, and then it ended great. And we have to thank this man for showing up on our podcast. So I'm sure you're all excited to find out who it is, but you're going to have to wait for that. I just want to apologize to you all that I didn't spend more time asking him All-Star Squadron questions. I was going to ask him questions from all across the board, (laughs) Uh, but because of the technical problems in the middle of the show uh, where Zoom just cut out on us and then we had to wait to get, you know, him back and that was a problem. It took some time and of course he's busy. He had to leave later on. Uh, But the good news is he's promised to come back to the show. Yeah, so come next year, we'll have part two of our interview with him. I hope that um, he will deign to come back. He said he would, (laughs) but you know, you never can tell. He's a very busy man. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode of A World on Fire, which is officially episode 22. And we're just going to call this episode The Interview. Enjoy. Hey there, All-Stars. Welcome to a special interview episode of A World on Fire, an All-Star Squadron podcast. I'm Herman Lowe, and I'm joined, as always, by my podcasting partner, the Robot Man to my Commander Steel, the Wizzy Winks to my Plastic Man, uh, the Baron Blitzkrieg to my Zwerg, Mr. Billy D. How are you, Billy? I am doing great. Uh, Actually, I'm doing better than great. Why don't you mention who exactly we'll be interviewing on this episode? Well, that's right. I don't know how we lucked into this, but somehow we managed it. We're joined today by a man who needs no introduction, but we're going to give him one anyway because he's a legend and because we want you listeners to see if you can guess who it is sitting in our third chair today. First off, he's the man who made us fall in love with the Justice Society, with Conan the Barbarian, with World War II Kappa Namor, with the Avengers. He wrote our favorite Sorcerer Supreme for a while there, fleshed out his mystic mythology, He created and co-created scores of timeless characters and three of our personal favorites from the Bronze Age. I'm talking about Morbius, Man-Thing, and Luke Cage. He made me a sword and sorcery fan and introduced me to Robert E. Howard, and he fascinated us with stories of a Native American who discovered Europe and became a Viking. 
He single-handedly jump-started my love for funny animal comics with Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew. And last but never least, he took us to Infinity Inc. and beyond. I won't keep you in suspense any longer. It's Roy Thomas. Hi, Roy. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Hey, I, I sound pretty good. I should make you my press agent or something. Here. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I have a copy of that introduction? I'll just add the mention of co-creating Wolverine to it. And it's all ready to go out. You know? Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> that's, well, that's one of the most important things. I left that out, but um, for, right. for, for personal reasons. <laughs> you don't like Wolverine? You don't like Wolverine? No, no. I, I love Wolverine a lot, but I figured I mentioned so many Marvel characters already. And since this is an all-star centric podcast, you know, sure. I'm going to you know, keep it to our personal favorites. You know, um, Billy and I were big horror comic guys. And that's why we're, yeah. this is actually very apropos that we're Which I talking never to you. Never was. But, you know, that, that leads me to my first question, Roy, because after yeah. all, this being Halloween, that's when we're doing this recording for the listeners just to, right. to, to get a bit of inside info here. Uh, my first question is a Halloween-related question, you know, related to horror and Marvel. Mm -hmm. uh, and here it is. Uh, would it be fair to say that you single-handedly jump-started the horror craze at Marvel when you invented Morbius in 1970 and then in 1971 went on to invent, and you invented Man-Thing in that, uh, co-created Man-Thing and Morbius in that? Uh, that well, year. I would like to say that, but it wouldn't be true. <laughs> yeah, you got frozen. Well, we don't like, believe you, Roy. I would love to say that, but it isn't true. The fact remains that it was really, uh, besides the art, the various artists involved, each of whom played a part usually in a different character, but no, uh, most of that, not all of it, but the, and the initial impetus for it all came from Stan. It, you know, I'd like to say it was all my idea and I helped do a lot cool. of it, but Morbius was when Stan said, put a vampire in the, in the issue of Amazing uh, Spider-Man, the first issue or two he was going to have me write. So he said, do a vampire because it was, just, the code had just changed so we could do vampires. Gil Kane and I were going to do uh, introduce Dracula into the Marvel Universe. And he said, no, I want a supervillain vamp vampire. And so in a way, he's sort of the co-creator of Morbius. He said a, a supervillain vampire. Then, you know, I, I yeah. made, made up this idea of the blood disease from the old movie I saw. And Gil Kane and I worked out Morbius and so forth. And uh, so and and uh, Dracula was. As a matter of fact, I'd forgotten this totally, but I guess I guess I wrote this at you know just a year or two after the fact. Evidently, at one time, it seems to have been Martin Goodman who suggested the idea of doing a Dracula wow. book, uh, maybe a black and white or color, whatever it was. I have to go back and look. I think it might be in the Dracula Lives number one. There's an editorial that I wrote, and I'd, I've kind of forgotten all this because Dracula went through. You know, it started off. It was going to be a black and white when Gene Colan started it, which is why it became mm. a. Uh, I think the story is longer than the usual Marvel story. Yeah. Dracula number one. That's because it was going to be a black and white story. Then, then Stan decided to make it a color comic and so forth. And once he had that, then he wanted other things. He didn't exactly say he wanted a werewolf, but I knew he wanted a werewolf. So I made, <laughs> I made up the I werewolf thing, which he then, even then retitled werewolf by night. Otherwise he had no direct connection, but he wanted a werewolf man thing was his idea and his name. He and I worked out the general plot, and then I did the plot and had Jerry Conway write it. But again, Man-Thing, I wouldn't have called it a Man-Thing because we already had a thing. And I didn't like right. the idea of calling <laughs> a character Man-Thing at Marvel. I would have called him something else, you know, the Heat, right. maybe. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, so the whole, the whole impetus of doing it really was as much Stan as mine. Yeah. Uh, and 
but what but we knew we wanted to do the marvel thing because we weren't mm. we had stan had wanted to revive those comics like the tower of shadows and things yeah because they had so many horror comics in the old days with no characters right but somehow i don't know the the new marvel crew with the exception of maybe more uh, martin goodman and and you know guys like marv wolfman and others had written stories for creepy or whatever but somehow or other we didn't have the i don't know we just weren't geared to do none of us cared to care about seven eight page mystery stories with a yeah. twist ending. We yeah. like them. I respect what Al Feldstein and Stan and all the other people did, even mm -hmm. if I'd ever read any of them at the time. Uh, but, you know, it was just too much work. And when Stan wasn't really pushing us, we just all kind of let it go to hell. Yeah. <laughs> we, weren't, we, just weren't, we weren't very interested. Maybe a couple of the individual writers, we didn't care. I certainly didn't care. I was much more interested in Dracula, Morbius, Werewolf by Night, yeah. uh, you know, Man Thing. And then, and then Gary Friedrich came up with what was probably the, a non-supernatural version of a ghostwriter character. That, that's right. And once yeah. I took it into stand and we started discussing it, uh, somehow I, I suspected it it suddenly transmuted into a supernatural character, which worked out very well. And then I don't know, either Stan or I would mention things like, How, let's, okay, we got the mummy. We haven't done a mummy yet. So I <laughs> made up the word living mummy, which yeah. I, made, I made up that term so because you could trademark maybe living mummy, but you couldn't trademark just, just mummy. Oh, the mummy. universe already had that. So... But yeah. but Stan was at the bottom, of the top, and all around all this stuff. Even if I some a few of them might have been my ideas, but he created the whole template. I and it would wow. be wrong to give me more credit than just you know, <laughs> co-creator of that thing. Okay, but but yeah. uh, if you forget Stan, you've missed like the central point. It wouldn't have no. happened without him. No, I suspected gotcha. as much, Roy. But you know, a pretty impressive pedigree you've got when you count all the horror characters. I mean, you can add. Brother Voodoo and Damon Hellstrom to the mix as well. well. Dr. Voodoo, right? Yeah. Dr. Voodoo, Stan, uh, Stan said he wanted to revive Strange Tales. It's good. He liked that title. He says, yeah. let's revive Strange Tales. Get some kind of supernatural thing in there. So uh, he was talking to somebody else in his office later. And I, about 15 minutes later, I stuck my head in. I remembered a character I had created who was looked a little like the Phantom. And he was a human being and he was white. But I had made up a character when I was 12, 13 years old and made a logo and drew a couple of stories. I remember nothing about him, but the name was Dr. Voodoo. Wow. And I cool. used a logo for that old voodoo horror comic, the big, tall voodoo. Yeah, logo. I remember. And mm. so I stuck my head in and I said, Dr. Voodoo, just the name, you know. Yeah. It, it, he thinks, he just thinks about maybe three seconds. And he says, no, Brother Voodoo. <laughs> and I said, so that made sense because it suddenly became it's a, it's a black man. For sure, which I hadn't thought I hadn't thought that far about yeah. one way or the other, and somehow then now it has to be on Haiti. Somehow the whole thing, and then of course I turned over to Len Wein, and he and I discussed it, and he did a lot of research, and you know, so we yeah. know, sort of did that, and Colin drew it. But again, you know, Stan was an integral part of of all of virtually all these things. More, the one he had now he had nothing to do with Morbius once. Gil and I started working on it because, you know, he, he was busy writing that screenplay with Alan Rene at the time. Yeah. But yeah. if he hadn't said do a supervillain vampire, we'd have just done Dracula. You know, we'd have lost Morbius and I wouldn't right. have a movie coming wow. out. And he wanted it as the co-creator sometime in the next few months or 10 years, depending on how long this. <laughs> so yeah. I hope it's sooner yeah. than later, but yeah, it's a pretty <laughs> unique take on the vampire. I think mythology. it's over, right? Bill Maher and I think it's over. Yeah. Well, we hope so. <laughs> the sooner we get to that movie, <laughs> yeah. the better. Yeah, because yeah. the only reason I wanted to start us off like that, Roy, is because Billy and I, we run two separate horror comics podcasts mm -hmm. as well. And, you know, your name comes yeah. up quite a bit. But let's Which bring this funny. back. Yeah. Let's bring <laughs> this back. Because I never to read it. horror comics when I was a kid. <laughs> no, I, I, 
Who knew? I, I know. I, I, re- I read that somewhere in an interview or, or listened to it that, that you mentioned that. But you know, I used still- to glance at it on the newsstands and I would remember the endings of EC Comics and things. When I met someone 10, 15 years later that had a, my friend Len Brown of Topps Chewing Gum that had a complete collection at the time of uh, all wow. the EC Comics. And I went to his, first time I went over his house, he showed this to me and I said, do you have the story that's a takeoff on Kukla, Fran and Ollie? I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. But no. It was a takeoff in that puppet show, and the puppet is actually an alien that's grown on the guy's hand and takes over oh. the world. And, and the one which is a takeoff in the movie, The Thing from Another World, except it's the Frankenstein mm. monster coming out of the ice instead of an alien from another planet. That was another story drawn by Ghastly Ingalls. But I remembered these because I would glance at them for like three seconds in this newsstand, paging yeah. through them. But I knew that somehow I felt that that kind of thing, just from the movies I'd seen, would, would give me, if not nightmares, would just bother me. Yeah, and I really wasn't that interested. I, I preferred western superhero, mm. funny animal. I just crime and horror comics, like romance comics, just never interested me very much. I could, I, I got to know some of the artists. I, I recognized Joe Manili, and you know, I'd see these guys I knew from other places, Bill Everett, and so forth. But I just never bought that stuff. And it's ironic because apparently your first uh, story written at Marvel once you got the job as staff writer was Millie the Model. <laughs> Billy the model, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I'd never read that before either. You know, at the time it was half romance and half humor, more romance than humor. It had been both back and forth over the years. I didn't like it in any incarnation, but I had, I enjoyed writing it for the little bit. And I was sure glad to give it to Denny O'Neill. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, yeah. No, but, um, you know, and then, of course, I think your uh, first writing credits on World War, World War II stories started with Sergeant Fury and the Helen Commandos. Yeah. And the morning uh, after the great uh, New York blackout of 65, right? Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Interesting. No, I didn't wow. know that. that that's a, that's, well, that's how Denny got Millie. Oh, know, uh, okay. You know, Denny had just come into New York a couple weeks earlier to, to take a staff job. And he and I were both staying with uh, Dave Kaler, a guy I'd met who was then writing Captain. I got to help him get a job writing Captain Adam for Charlton. So I couldn't write for them anymore when I came to New York. And, uh, Denny and I were on the at about 5:30 on a November afternoon in '65 on the subway, and we were coming home. And suddenly, there's a the blackout. We're stuck down. We didn't even know what's happening for the first hour. Finally, after about two or three hours, someone comes in with a lantern and leads us to the next station. We were, hope the third rail doesn't come on while we're here. So we took the <laughs> night off. I mean, the whole city's dark, black. We just take the night off. We went out to a restaurant by candlelight. Stan, of course, got a a whole a candle brigade together, he and his wife, and he wrote a whole issue of, I guess, then he said it was Daredevil, you know, and uh, I mean, a whole comic, and then came in the next morning apologizing to the production manager, Saul Brodsky, in front of Denny and me, saying he was sorry he couldn't also write Sergeant Fury, <laughs> but, wow. you know, so, you know so there, was a, there was a power blackout last night. I said, yeah, we know it's the, some of the stuff was still out, and that's how I, and so Stan said, since he, he couldn't do that Sergeant Fury, which was already drawn by Dick Ayers, he, said, he gave it to me to dialogue, which is how, it says, from now on, you're the uh, Sergeant Fury writer. I'm just to do it. <laughs> and then, but I was in the middle of a, I was halfway through a Millie the Model, you know, Millie the Model, modeling with Millie, muddling with Molly. What, I don't know what the, name <laughs> of the book was, but anyway, so, and so I had to, I gave that off to Denny and he became the writer of the Millie and the Patsy and Hedy book. <laughs> That I was doing, you know, it, it was just a shove down. Stan shoved the sub at me, and whatever I was doing, he gave that to Denny, so I would have time to do it. And that it worked okay for a while, you know. And oh, unfortunately, it also meant I left. I got missed my chance to write to dialogue the last two Ditko Doctor Stranges. You know, I had dialed the two oh, before that, and I had so that Denny got to do Ditko's last two Doctor Stranges instead of me. So I lost out yeah. on that. One. Oh, okay. But yeah. other than that, you know. Uh, 
it was a good system. Stan just gave me his hand. I was secondhand Roy is what I was. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of that till the other day, but uh, that's a good, that would have been a better name for me than Rascally Roy. <laughs> <laughs> I still like Rascally, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, but um, no, it's, it's a happenstance. And, you know, it seems that you were, you know, at the right place at the right time in a couple of instances, not just mm-hmm. in the very yeah. beginning. Been very lucky. Very yeah, lucky. definitely. So, you know, I've got a brief question about the, the, the Silver Age, you know, when, when you were writing for Marvel, and then we'll move on to the Bronze Age where All-Star Squadron hit it big. I was wondering, you know, uh, during uh, the Silver Age at Marvel, it was uh, well known that some of the DC editors, they were all reading Marvel comics because they wanted to, you know, figure out what made the comics tick and why they were so successful. Was it the bad writing or the bad artwork? <laughs> that's what they couldn't figure out. Well, you, you know, they called Kirby bad and that's blasphemy. But yeah, that's um, what I mean. They wouldn't have hired Ditko either at that stage. Uh, yeah, you know, nor, nor, were the, nor were they sure. particularly been interested in Stan, you know, if he had wanted to go there. But yeah. uh, they were obviously, I mean, maybe not correct. Yeah, no, I, I definitely not. In hindsight, you can see they weren't. But, you know, uh, they were used to a different style. And I was wondering, mm-hmm. since you were at Marvel and you were already, you know, a writer, but becoming a, a Stan successor, was it was the same true for you guys at Marvel? Were you also, you know, still keeping up with what, what was happening at DC? And could you personally keep up with your favorite DC characters at that point well, in time? Well, I bought them off busy? the stands. I bought the books off the stands, you know, uh, you know, uh, when Denny went over, he was writing Green Lantern, Green Arrow. And, you know, we, we, you know, it was a different kind of book. And there were some things we admired. We weren't sure it was commercial. Didn't actually sell, you know, quite as well as, you know, you what they might have thought. But it had some good points to it. Uh, and there were other good books, you know, one, one book I know we admired that's even stand like one of the few, I think, was Dead Man. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. From Neil Adams. Neil and, I guess Neil Adams. Jack Miller. And Jack Miller was doing most of the yeah, writing after yeah, that first probably, book. Yeah. And uh, that was pretty good. Uh, and he would look at other things. He was sort of, you know, I remember once when Gary Friedrich wrote there, so that would have been the very end of 66, at least. Uh, he was suddenly talking about Green Lantern. So Gary and I started telling him. Just, you know, from our different perspectives, what he would have done with Green Lantern. He thought that was funny. He says, you guys are telling me what I would have done, you know, which is funny because years later, he got his chance to do what if Stan Lee had created Green Lantern or something. And of course, he did quite different. But uh, so he he did. He kind of paged through them, you know, and some of them he was interested in more than others. But, you know, and others he seemed unaware of, like for a long time, he was unaware of any similarity between Doom Patrol and X-Men, you know, although Arnold Drake, of course, was not. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was a certain, but, you know, but no, he was we, he was kind of aware uh, there wasn't any. The only thing that he would have, you know, he, you know, he, he would have he would have loved to have, you know, uh, had Dead Man and maybe certain aspects of Green Lantern, Green Arrow. I don't think he liked that as much. He loved, loved Neil's artwork, of course. Mm, of course, yeah. And oh, yeah. Uh, he was aware of the fact that, you know, Denny, who had somehow not been on the same wavelength with him, but he was kind of making waves there. But it was a style that. Stan was entirely happy with. I was always trying to find ways to bring Denny back to do some Marvel stuff because I thought yeah. he should be there. And somehow he and Stan just, Denny was going through a difficult time in his life, having just got married and different things and so forth. And, you know, and I think somehow he and Stan, you know, got off on the wrong foot and everything. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. uh, you know, these things kind of happened. But I don't think he was certainly when Mort Weiser got it, when he threw me out of his office that day in 65, accused me of being a spy for Stan Lee. Definitely Stan was not spying on Superman. I mean, Superman may have been selling a lot of copies by then, but Stan would have felt he had nothing to learn from Superman, you know, or what was being done at that time, you know, with Batman. But, you know, a few of the other good books, you know, he would keep up with it. I never heard him comment too much except for those few things, but, 
but he was he paged through the books and then calls in once in a while and mentions something about him. But oh, okay. that only happened a couple of times, and I think less and less and less. Yeah, because yeah. Um, you know uh, during that time, you know, it seemed that uh, you know uh, I, you. Uh, personally created, for instance, the Squadron Sinister, which was a pastiche of the Justice League. So I was wondering if you were. That's why you know, I did create because I actually drew yeah. them first. So I actually even designed the costumes. Although Sally yeah. wow. you know, did the story, I actually because yeah. I knew what I wanted, and I drew pictures and sent them to Sal exactly what the costume looked like. You know, Hyperion with the the cape on one shoulder and the exactly the costume lines so they would not be Superman's, and you know exactly yeah. the way the Batman takeoff would look, so that we wouldn't be too close to Batman. You know, and nice. Like that. That's one of the very rare times I actually, you know, drew a character that and Mr. Bones and one or two others, but very seldom. Wow. That, that, that's interesting because, you know, I, I find that fascinating that during that time, you know, there was some, you know, for instance, there's the story that you would run into the DC um, guys, you know, when you went out for lunch and uh, you wouldn't. Well, okay. Well, we um, socialized you know. a little, I don't remember running them into at lunch. I, we would socialize at parties and things, you know, we, we all got along. We got to know Marvin Lennon. and, you know, some of the people kind of coming up and Denny was around and, you know, and Dave Kaler worked Charlton. He knew all of us because we had all stayed at his house, Gary, Denny, and I, and even Steve Gerber for a week at the, uh, in 65 came to New York. So we'd all sort of got to know. So we all sort of knew each other and, you know, it was a small community. And those of us who were, well, I was one of the older of them. Those of us who were under 30, at least, you know, 20, like 25 or so that I was and below down and so forth, you know, we had a little different take on things than the, the older artists who'd been yes. around for 20, 30 years. You know, we, we sort of had a community who came from fandom in many cases or something like it, you know, so, so we were in touch, but we didn't run it up to Saul Brodsky and I would eat lunch together most days. And I don't remember ever seeing. Oh, any, any DC guys. Around. But DC okay. was like 10, 20 minutes away. We didn't run into them at lunch. No. All right. Right. No, no, well. no cute meetings in the park with Judy Schwartz. <laughs> <laughs> So at least you guys kept, uh, you know, up with what was happening in DC. Uh, specifically, the reason why I asked that is, of course, during the 60s, when you were at Marvel, the Justice Society, and even before you started at Marvel, the Justice Society started uh, popping up in comics again with the crossover with the JLA. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jerry and I had been, Jerry Bales and I had been partly responsible because I think, you know, we were always pushing Julie about those curves, but we didn't push him to do it that way. Julie really surprised us when he came up with the Earth 2 thing. We, you know, we, we were hoping to see the Justice Society someday. We hope they weren't lost forever. And Julie came up in connection with uh, Gardner Fox with a wonderful way to do it. Yeah, that's right. I, I was wondering how, as a comic book fan, when you probably read that uh, first uh, issue featuring Barry Allen as the Flash in the 50s, mm -hmm. how it must have felt when you saw Jay Garrick, the Flash, on a comic book page that yeah, Barry was, was reading. It was wonderful because, you know, the new costume was better. Yeah. Uh, but I still like the old one. In the case of uh, Green Lantern, I like the old costume better. Oh, that's the same with Billy and I. And the Hawkman is the Alan same Scott. one, practically. So. <laughs> yeah. Hawkman Hulk, yeah. became a science yeah. fiction type of yeah. superhero. But, you know, many characters during that time did. But that leads me, you know, us into the Bronze Age now a little bit um, because... All, uh, are we going to get to the All-Star Squadron? Yeah, the finally, we're going to get to the All-Star Squadron. So I probably <laughs> committed, you know, committed to the idea of... Yeah, I know. I briefly... To the idea of not getting there. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> oh, it's I, all good. You know, yeah. I briefly wanted to, to just ask you, Roy, there's this... Um, it's not a rumor. It's been documented, I think, that you and Jerry, you know, Conway, you were great friends and you had these brainstorming sessions and you mm -hmm. did yeah. movie scripts together, famously Conan mm -hmm. and and fire and ice and so forth right. but in the 70s Famously, you already... i don't know about fire and ice but anyway, <laughs> we it was better than the movie <laughs> <laughs> but he only filmed 70 to agree. It, so 
Mm -hmm. But it sends the script. When you film 70% of a script, you might be leaving out important things. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. It must be. But, you know, you had these brainstorming sessions with Jerry and um, mm -hmm. most of it happened when you were socializing and so forth, yeah. I guess. And yeah. um, famously, uh, the when Jerry was writing for DC and you were still at Marvel, apparently one of these sessions led to you inspiring Jerry to ask DC to relaunch or not relaunch, but to continue yeah. publishing All-Star yeah. Comics. Yeah. Can you Jerry tell us might, a little bit about that? Yeah, Jerry might remember it differently. What, what I remember is that when he went over that thing, we, we started kicking around things probably at his house, maybe at mine, you know, that uh, about uh, what he could do there. And I, and I pretty sure, you know, that I mentioned the idea of all-star kind of, he took it in his own direction, you know, because he, he became convinced, well, they were, they really stars now they'd been in these team ups, these crossovers, but were they big enough to carry a magazine? So he, that's why he brought in, uh, Power Girl and Star Spangled Kid, you know, as, as new characters and Robin, you know, who had a little little uh, star power and so forth. And, and I never liked that, you know, at all. But, you know, it was it was his book. I, you know, once I I mean, I gave him a couple of ideas that the idea of get Superman and Captain Marvel together. And that led that great tabloid. But Jerry did all the work. And, you know, I'm not trying to take any. I mean, he could have if I hadn't said those, he, you know, he started thinking about, it. he was bright enough. He would have, could have thought of a lot of that stuff himself. And he's the one that had to actually, he offered me once when he was writing all-star comics, a chance to ghost an issue when he had to go out. I think that's how Paul Levitz got started. But I said, no, if I ever write all-star comics, I'm going to write it under my own name. I'm not going to ghost. I'm not going to ghost all-star comics. You know? <laughs> but, uh, so he understood that, but he had me, he had printed a letter from me, which I didn't know if Stan would like in the first issue when he brought back all-star, you know, saying yeah. bring him back and said yeah this is from roy thomas used to be a fan whatever happened <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, yeah we were very we were very good friends for a number of years yeah. we still got along okay yeah so so roy while you were still at marvel um you had given up the editorship and then you were still writing but you had had some offers from dc and at that time did you did the dc guys already know you were interested in the justice society and doing something like everybody that? knew that you everybody know, knew we, that yeah nobody even <laughs> 10 minutes to know that you know? <laughs> well you know if the, all the stuff i'd done you know in the uh in, in, in alter ego i have a takeoff you know on the bestest league and the bestest society you know and i was i would write articles about them and you know, and of course, the, and then in conversation, but, and these guys liked it too. It's just nobody liked it as much as Jerry Bales and I, you know, did, but not even Jerry or Conway or anybody like that. But, you know, they all knew that. And Carmine wanted me to do Superman. Of all, of all the things that make me run shrieking in horror was the idea of being a Superman or Batman <laughs> rider. I did. I loved those characters. I didn't want to write either one of them and be one of three or four Batman riders, three or four. So I didn't even want to write them if I was the only writer particularly. Wonder Woman sort of interested me, but not those other two. I, I wanted to write something, you know, different. So Jerry did the uh, Justice Society. And since that had only recently failed, you know, I mean, you know, it did done okay. But then when DC imploded, it wasn't really the book failed so much as DC's implosion. The everything. So I felt, well, you know, if you revive the Justice Society, it's just, you know, bringing back a book that was canceled about a year ago, no matter what I do to it. And I thought, let's, you know, I'll do something different. And by that time, I'd grown kind of I was tired of, you know, I'd been in comics by that time for 15 years at Marvel under the best editor in, in the, the most important editor, certainly in the mm. business, with all due respect to Martin, Julie Schwartz, and some very talented people here and there. But so I wanted to do something. I was just wanting to do something different. And I didn't really care about commercial comics anymore. I, you know, I've had that. I'd been the editor in chief of Marvel Comics. I'd been editing my own comics for years uh, and everything after that. So I wanted to do something where, and I was hoping I could do it in a way that would make people interested enough 
maybe not to be the best-selling comic in the world, you know, like Marvel would go over and create Teen Titans. That was great. I was just wanting to find a niche where it'd be popular enough that everybody would leave me alone. And I, <laughs> I, could just do, just, I was spoiled because I'd had that with Conan for so many years, you know, oh, nobody yeah. else was allowed. I wouldn't let, it's not like somebody else could have written Conan, but I wouldn't let them because what if somebody wrote a better Conan and I'm out of a job. <laughs> and uh, so, so I would, so I wanted to write All-Star Squadron and I'm in World War II. Nobody else is messing around with that. And so forth, you know, so I became sort of the Earth 2 editor unofficially for a while before I was, and, and I created the idea of the All-Star Squadron as a name and uh, complete with hyphens and kept badgering anybody who ever spelled it without one. <laughs> so it actually they shouldn't have to worry about the abbreviation of All-Star Squadron because it's really only two words spelled A-S, really, you know. We have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and that was what, and I went over there and talked them into it. And uh, uh, when I met with Paul Levitz, Jeanette Kahn and, and Joe Orlando and they let me do it. Len had to be the editor. They didn't have the writer editor position, but Len was kind of told to basically leave me alone and not do much unless I, you know, went crazy or whatever. And Len con uh, contented himself with handling the covers, which he would hardly let me touch. I wouldn't see him until they came out. And that wow. caused a little friction. But otherwise, we got along quite, and it, quite well. All right, Roy. So finally, we're getting to the All-Star Squadron here. You were allowed to do them. And uh, Billy's got a couple of All-Star Squadron specific questions related to you. Billy, I'm mm -hmm. going to let you go for this part of the interview. Hit it. Yeah, I definitely want to know, you know, what are your favorite All-Stars? You know, the, of the group that you started there with, which are your mm -hmm. favorite characters in there? Well, my favorites for the old JSA, which uh, were uh, in order, I'm sure, Hawkman, and Green Lantern and the Adam because he was small. I was small. You know, and Hawkman because he just, I love that the mask around 1946 that Kubert did with the great upper and lower beak and the flaring wings on top. I used to, my yeah. in catechism when I was 10 or 12 is just full of drawings of Hawkman's. I could draw that in the dark, you know, that still. <laughs> and, uh, but, um, and of course, I liked all those characters, but that's particular. But, of the other the others, there were just all these characters that I felt cheap. You know, they could have just as easily been members of the Justice Society. Some of them had been members of the Seven Soldiers of Victory, though I hadn't seen that when I was a kid, except for one ad. And, you know, because, um, you know, they, any of those guys could have been in there. In fact, there was a rumor when we started, uh, when Phantom got started, that Aquaman had been in the in the Seven Soldiers. How, how little we knew about it. We thought he'd been in there as well as Green Arrow, you know, and so forth. And so I, I thought all these characters should be in there. And because I thought, what would FDR have done, knowing what little I do about him from reading? He always tried to gather things into great big groups, get everybody under one umbrella. He did this in quite a few things. So what, what I did was to assume that even the Justice Society and the Seven Soldiers of Victory and all the heroes who weren't in a group, he would try to get them all in one group, you know, one-stop shopping for the war effort, you know? And that was my, yeah. my and of course, what it, it was, uh, I really wanted it both to do that with, so I could use all the characters, but I also, I didn't want to, and this was uncommercial of me probably, but I didn't want to be committed to having three, four, five, or even 12 characters be around every issue and be the, you know, but I, but at the same time, I knew that, you know, you need to do some of that. And so I took these, a handful of the best heroes who actually had powers of a sort, uh, well, Liberty Bell didn't really. I gave her a little more of them because we needed a woman in the group. And she actually didn't start till 43, but her her origin dated back to 1940 and Dun Dunkirk and so forth. So I just moved her up a little bit. Robot Man was a good character. 
Uh, um, Johnny Quick was a great character. He could substitute for the Flash. We didn't need the Flash. We had Robot Man was another. He could do stuff that Green Lantern or Plastic Man could do. The Shining Knight didn't have superpowers, but he had a flying horse. That's always good. And uh, you know, and then and then I was going to bring in the quality characters. I, I worried about that back and forth, but and I think I was committed partly to doing it because I like Plastic Man, though I didn't end up using him much, and because we needed more women, and I thought I could use Phantom Lady, but then I didn't end up doing much with that anyway. And I, in, in retrospect, I could just as easily have left them out instead of having them on Earth too. I wanted to use, I wanted to even bring in the Fawcett characters, whatever ones I could, but DC was still having to pay a license fee at that stage for a right. year or two. So they, they would only let me guest star occasionally when Captain Orr would be big enough in there that it was worth paying a license fee, as except because if they had him in two panels, they still had to pay the license. Oh yeah. See, so I'd had to, you know, so I, but I, I hauled in everybody I could, you know, and the one character <laughs> at one stage near the end, they told me to leave out. So because I'd only shown him in one little symbolic shot was Aquaman. So one person there said, so don't bring Aquaman in, you know, in these last, and at that stage it was going to run out in a few issues. So naturally the very next issue, I put Aquaman in the, on the first page and in the center of the whole action, because nobody's going to tell me what characters. To use. <laughs> Excellent. Right before I kill it, I was going to make sure I got Aquaman in screw them complete with his yellow gloves, which was all <laughs> identified him from the other character. Yeah. So that was basically it. I just want, so I thought those guys would be the nucleus, mm. the, the, the non, but, and I talked, uh, Jeanette, Paul, Orlando, uh, whoever I was talking to, instead I said, I want to use a nucleus of three JSA characters. This was a little like what I wanted to do with the X-Men when I made up that international X-Men, take a couple of the yeah. old guys in there. So a couple of JSAers ought to be in there. But instead of taking like Flash and Green Lantern, who'd be our Wonder Woman, I wanted to use three that I, for some reason, wanted to get in. I just liked them, Hawkman and the Atom, whom I've already mentioned, and Dr. Midnight, who I felt was. So I, I just felt somehow I always saw those three as a group, even though they never really were. So I wanted them to be around when the others were captured. And they would sort of end up being a little more of the all-star because I had this idea. Hawkman was the one character who had been in every one of the 57 issues of all-star comics in the 40s to 1950. So I wanted to have Hawkman in every single issue, at least a, at least one shot, you know. And yeah. it made it, except that one time it was on an overlay at the end of one issue and the stupid uh, assistant editor didn't get it right. So it was left out and really oh, no. the record. I printed the thing later, but he <laughs> left it out. There was a space for oh. it. And his, 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 you know, so no matter what you get, if you have incompetent help, <laughs> that goes <through laughs> but it served me right for, I should have made sure it wasn't on an overlay so nothing could go wrong. But uh, I, other than that, I kept him in every issue. That, but that was just a personal thing. It was really a very self-indulgent comic, I admit, that uh, I talked the DC into letting me do, thinking it was a great, wonderful commercial idea. And it was reasonably commercial. It sold pretty well, especially when Buckler and Ardway were doing it. And other people, Arvell Jones and others, Rick Holberg, did a really good job with it later. But I think it little, lost a little something when Ardway left. He'd been associated with all that first you know, 20 or so mm. issues and, yeah. and we lost a little something, but it was still limping along and all we needed to do was maybe get back on the right track. And then that damn crisis came along and that finished everything. And I yeah. love Marv Wolfman and I love George Perez and I hated crisis on infinite earth, no matter how good it was. Uh, you know, I could, I could blow up every copy of it. I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Roy, I could, well, Billy and I are the same, Roy. We are not, uh, it was a good book too. It was, it was well written, well drawn. And I, you know, <laughs> I just, yeah, I just don't, we don't care for what it did, you know, yeah, well, yeah. I, it didn't need to be done. I, you know, I, I, yeah. I don't know if Marv felt it did. Some of the people at DC did. I said, no, when Bob Haney is writing about the sons of Superman, that's Bob <laughs> Haney's fault. 
and his editor for letting him do that. A good writer, <laughs> but you know, when Julie Schwartz, when when two people, when either Julie Schwartz was handling virtually all the Earth Two continuity, although he did a few mix-ups himself, or when I was handling it, Earth Two continuity ran fine. When nobody was really paying attention, or they were just letting all the, the genius editors do whatever wonderful idea they came up with every week, well, guess what's going to happen? We see it happen, company <laughs> after company. I I mentioned no names, and uh, you know. But that's what happens. You need to have somebody kind of in charge. That was the yeah. idea behind Dick Giordano wanting to name me Earth 2 editor. And not everybody wanted that because that meant I could stop them from doing certain things. And I said, yeah, <laughs> because <laughs> that's how you get screwed up is when there isn't anybody in charge of something. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, for I sure. I cheerfully volunteered to be in charge of the Earth 2 characters forever. You know, as awesome. I always say, if, they, if it hadn't been for that damn crisis, uh, we, like, we'd be up to about issue three or 400 now yeah. of uh, All-Star Squadron. And I might have gotten to the year 1943. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you never made it out of uh, 1942, okay. unfortunately. Well, yeah, we wouldn't we have complained. Out of 42. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I kept continuing that continuity in Young All-Stars, which was supposed to actually be a second series of All-Star Squadron starting over with new number one, which would have meant we would have had about 100 issues of a comic called All-Star Squadron instead of the two. But I wasn't comfortable with calling that second group the All-Star Squadron because they I was had to bring in these new characters to emphasize them. And if I did, and yet it would be called All-Star Squadron, but I couldn't use some of the characters. I couldn't use it all anymore, like Superman. And, and the others, they wanted me to downplay and only have in occasionally. So I said, yeah. how, how is that going to be the All-Star Squadron? And my wife came up with the idea, you know, but the young All-Stars name. And except for Young Allies, I don't know if any other comic was ever the Young Heroes thing before you know young all-stars now there's about five thousand young justice yeah young, young avengers everywhere <laughs> yeah, but, but except for the young allies way back in the distant past uh which you weren't consciously thinking of uh you know there hadn't been but Je when once she said that i thought well that's good these guys are all like 20 or under uh, so let's make it that and that way we, that way we have an explanation for why the all-star squadron is only minimally shown once in a while yeah. i still get in trouble they'd suddenly decide they didn't want what is Green Lantern doing on the cover of this or that or the infinity? So yeah. said, nobody had ever told me not to use him on the cover. Nobody had ever told right. me not to use him. But I had broken, you know, again, some unwritten law, you know, that, that they only made up yesterday. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I loved DC's character and I loved a lot of the people and I just hated that organization from top to bottom. Yeah, top well, we, we regret that I as well. I survived there. That's why, all, actually, Roy, most of our podcasts are firmly centered in the Bronze Age, like start of, from Conan, you know, the Barbarian number one, from, mm -hmm. let's say, the 1970, uh, 1970 up to 1985, just before Crisis hit. That's the only era that, that we're right? Yeah, everybody has a different, yeah, that's not a bad, the Bronze Age was really brought crashing down by the, uh, the yeah, crisis. Yeah, by, by Crisis, it's true. And but it, you know, yeah. You know, but but some good things came from from that. Like I was a big fan of of, of young all stars. That core group of Arn Monroe as as let's say Superman, Furious Wonder Woman, and Flying Fox as as, as Batman, uh, and then you tied him into a previously created character that you and uh, Dan, your wife, created together, together, which was Arak. If I'm pronouncing it correctly, I yeah, hope. yeah. I wish I had done something a little different there, uh, but I mean, not, I didn't mind tying them together too too yeah. much, but. Yeah, I just love that flying fox being for Batman because, yeah. of course, you know, they'd done stuff like that at DC before. So Dan and I made, you know, some of the characters were mine because she didn't know anything about Iron Monroe or that or Gladiator right. at the time. Others were, you know, we, we jointly created and worked on a lot of the plots together. And, you know, she was invaluable, you know, giving me a different way to think about things uh, and everything. And uh, it, so it still had the World War II background. 
but you know, it's sort of with a different emphasis. And that was these young people, really young yeah. people. The, the other all stars were maybe just in their twenties, but they seemed older. They're always smoking right. pipes and things, you know. That's right. So, Roy, <laughs> listen, we we we've been taking up so much of your time. We've got two more questions that I want to ask you. Quick ones. Um, this is this is one uh, from well inspired by one of our well our unofficial third chair of the podcast. He's one of our uh, you know uh, podcast yeah. friends, but he's basically in every episode with his comments and he pointed out that um, there must be a story behind who took the photograph of the famous justice society photograph that you can see in their meeting room all the time of them sitting around oh, the I table did that but dc wouldn't let me publish it oh that that's what we want to ask I, I you was about trying to, I was, after the end of the thing sometime in the late 80s i i came up with a thing i think i i think i published it in an issue of alter ego it was called uh was it the night just was born or something like that and it, it was about the first meeting at the hotel of those eight guys and i guess i had somebody taking the picture because you know and but the thing is and i i you know since the red tornado comes by i showed what the other people were doing i showed what, what i showed them and a few little things and i showed what was you know superman and batman they're talking about they're they're too busy out fighting crime so i showed that you know i had them in there i showed the red tornado what happened before she got before she interrupted the meeting for a sec for one page. And then the flash runs out at one point to find somebody. And so I, I followed him. And in the meantime, some of these in the basement going to blow up this hotel they're meeting at because they're <laughs> really going to public place is what makes them decide they better have a secret headquarters. And I had this really, really nice story. And of course, so naturally DC didn't want to publish it, you know? Yeah. 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 Oh, oh man, <laughs> that, that's say? a shame because idiots abound. Yeah. We've always and wondered. I, and I like a lot of them, but boy, they made, I thought they just made stupid decisions because it would have just been a nice standalone story. Probably would have sold. I never thought stuff was going to sell. They didn't think when I, when I did the Captain Carrot Oz Wonderland war, Dick Giordano knew it would sell. They, and it sold twice the number of copies that, you know, that this, that this sales genius, you know, said that it would sell. He was very happy about that. Cause he said, these guys don't really know it nearly as much <laughs> as they think they do. And, you know, and uh, you know, a, a lot of other stuff did much better than, then they thought you can't listen to these people. You just have to kind of go on your instincts. I mean, nobody told Stan Lee what to do and Jack Kirby to create the fantastic four and Spider-Man. They were just doing it using their instincts. And that's a lot of, that's a lot better than a lot of bean counters. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Definitely. I mean, bean counters have their place, but you've got to keep them counting them beans and keep them away from important things. No creativity there. We'll no creative the decisions because they just mess it up. They don't know. All they can do is figure out what was done last year. Right. Mm -hmm. How about one Amazing. minute? So better that you go one minute. Amazing. All right, Roy, um, uh, I'm going to have a what if question here, because okay. many of our yeah. listeners obviously know, but many don't, that you're actually the creator of what if over at Marvel. But I'm going to you yeah. know, bring this back to the All-Star Squadron and to DC. Uh, so a what if question posed to the creator of what if, which is all the rage these days with the TV show being so successful over at Disney Plus. What if in the 1960s, Mord Weisinger was actually a nice guy and much like Stan did with Jim Steranko, he told a young mm -hmm. Roy Thomas have at it pick any title you want that's currently being published and you could do whatever you want with it which title would you have picked would you have brought the justice society back then or what would you have done well first i did an all-star squadron in fact in everything and but i might have done justice society because actually it's the same thing you know and everything i can do a justice size issue anytime i want to all-star squadron that was the umbrella organization that that would have been for i mean i loved Arak and infinity and there were any other i loved writing wonder woman until they started messing around with me but uh basically you know uh all-star squadron 
much as I loved the Avengers and much as I loved even more doing Conan, uh, All-Star Squadron was my favorite comic of all time to write. Wow. Uh, even more, as much, at least as much as Conan would be the one I would, you know, could see that I could easily have gone writing in an unbroken stint, which I couldn't maybe with Avengers, but by, with but the All-Star Squadron or Conan, I could have seen myself going on, you know, for, thir- for the last 30 Forever. years writing it. I don't, I don't say I wouldn't have run out of ideas. I'd be desperately asked my wife and everybody on the street for new ideas. <laughs> but, you know, I- I'd come up with something or other. And I know it wouldn't sell as well as the wonderful numbers the companies are selling today of comic books. But, you know, anyway, we got to get going. <laughs> yeah, listen, Roy, Thank thanks much. so much for your time. Ramble on. No, no, we really appreciate everything. And uh, Roy, a bit of luck. about just the all-star squadron sometime. Yeah, no, please. I mean, we're going to continue with the podcast. We'd love to have you yeah. back on, but we'll, we'll see how things shape up. But thanks again. Right. It was a real honor having you on. Thanks. Thank you. Everybody. So Roy Thomas, appreciate happy Halloween. It. Thanks, Roy. Yeah. Take care. Thanks, Roy. Bye. Bye-bye. See ya. Billy, man, dude, Roy Thomas. Mm. Oh, okay. We we messed up a little bit there. I it's my fault, you know. I got him talking about horror in the <laughs> beginning because we're recording today on Halloween, and and then Zoom cut out, and we <laughs> spent some a lot of time trying to get him back on. Oh, damn! I'm sorry about that. By the time mm. the listeners hear about this, this will be November. They're like thinking, why were we <laughs> wasting time talking about horror? But um, <laughs> luckily, the end you brought it together with some more pertinent all-star squadron questions. So well done there, mate. Well, I think we're lucky in the fact that a lot of our listeners of uh, all-star squadron, you know, they're, uh, they're Marvel and DC fans as well. So we're going to be, we're going to luck out. And I think a lot of people are going to be happy. They got to hear some of that as well. Cause that was, you know, Roy talking about that era, you know, like you said in the interview, we love horror so much. We, you just can't not ask him about that. It was fantastic to hear his thoughts on that stuff. Yeah, I'm, I doubt, I kind of doubt he'd want to be on the long box of darkness, maybe on Into the Weird, you never know. But, you know, we've got Star Rocket Radio, we could use that as a, a form of enticement to get Roy back. And, <laughs> you know, he did mention that they'll probably be back one day and talk about All-Star Squadron some more with us. So we've got that hope that uh, we might get this another interview out of them. So first off, let's just take some time out, Billy, to thank John Semino. Uh, yes, you know Roy's assistant who helped us to arrange this interview. John was integral, and he mm-hmm. also runs the Facebook page called the Roy Thomas Appreciation Society. So we yeah. want to give them a shout out. If you haven't joined that page page on Facebook yet, do so, All Star listeners, and then you know interact mm-hmm. with him that way. He's a great guy. Uh, he's got Roy's back, and he's always you know championing Roy and promoting him. And it seems that Roy's got a lot of energy. I mean, they just they just got off a flight, you know, and then wow. Got ready for the recording. Oh man, it's great. Yeah, it's, it's John's a John, John's a great guy. He's I, and when I met him and Roy at a show a few years ago, they mm. couldn't be nicer. Both guys, super nice. You know, it, it couldn't be more nice, more accommodating. And yes, huge thank you, John. We appreciate it absolutely. And Roy, obviously, yeah. That's right. Now, listeners, um, I know this game is a bit of a surprise to you. We didn't mention in the title of this episode that uh, it was going to be Roy. We're just going to mention the interview. Uh, <laughs> we just mentioned that. So, um, but, you know, um, the beginning of the show leaves you with a bit of a tease. But now, you know, we finally interviewed one of the big name creators. And uh, it's Roy Thomas, the creator of All-Star Squadron. And, 
who what's next billy probably jerry ordway <laughs> we're yeah. lucky <laughs> yeah we're yeah we're we're hoping you know let's fingers crossed maybe we'll get to talk to jerry no, too we're... about maybe a little, little all-star squadron a little infinite oh that would be fantastic no. and, and again dream come true <laughs> yeah definitely so listeners we hope you enjoyed that and um yeah so um billy and i are just gonna now now stop recording and just uh you know gush about roy <laughs> and mm. then we we could do this on air too but um yeah uh i i just in my i'm flabbergasted i'm you know discombobulated here i'm still you know so starstruck <laughs> you know I'm, so um uh mm. thanks billy man for helping also to arrange this interview this was epic and we hope oh, you yeah, listeners fun. enjoyed it yeah so listeners yeah, if you want to come back for more all-star goodness and if you want to, you know, send us feedback about this interview and how we messed up and <laughs> what questions we could have asked, <laughs> you could do so by sending a, an email to us, right, Billy? Where can they reach us? Yeah, that's a world on fire podcast at gmail.com. That's definitely where you can email us. And then, you know, at all squadron on Twitter, you know, reach out to us there. You know, you have uh, at dark long box. I'm at Billy D underscore licious. There's a, uh, uh, star rock at star rocket radio as well yeah reach out to us on there and uh you know hey you never know fingers crossed you know maybe they'll maybe there'll be a part two down the road sometime down the road wishful thinking but maybe <laughs> <laughs> definitely so thanks for listening guys we're out of here but we'll speak to you again soon expect another episode to drop in two weeks time until then take care and we'll see you soon bye-bye see you next time Tonight is uh, really a special treat for me, and I hope it will be for you, because my guest is somebody who is not only an old friend and associate, but one of the genuine, talented movers and shakers of our business. Roy Thomas, as good a writer as we're ever going to find anywhere in the comic business and maybe in any other business. Roy, it's really a pleasure having oh. you tonight. Thanks up for the build-up, except for the old part. <laughs> well, I meant old in a uh, figurative sense, of course. You'll always okay. be Roy the boy to me. Right. 